My name is Ray Montgomery. I'd like to welcome you to the Navigating Blindness podcast. And on today's show, I have Mr. Lou Moneymaker, President and CEO of Bosman Enterprises. How you doing, Lou? Fine, Ray. All right. And I also have Mr. Jack Chin. How you doing, Mr. Chin? Yes, how are you? I am doing good. I really wanted to bring you guys on the podcast, really, to talk about several different topics today. We're going to talk about um, sports. We're going to talk about Bosman Enterprises. And we're going to talk about... Um, really some of the perceptions people have about people who are blind and visually impaired. So, mm-hmm. Mr. Jack Chin, I know you are a lawyer. You went to UC Berkeley and Harvard as well. Mm-hmm. And you recently did the Race Across America last year. And I wanted to really talk about how you got involved with Race Across America. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I could be here all day talking about it. I'll try <laughs> to give you the short story. Um so I'm totally blind. Um, I lost my eyesight when I was 16 uh, through an eye operation that didn't go well. And at the time, it was a, a critical time in my own life where I was applying to colleges and, and all the rest. Uh, and a very transformative time as well, losing your eyesight before you take the SATs. Oh, yeah. And I think that um, through that experience, it helped me to develop uh, an understanding, a little bit more of an understanding about what it would take to be successful in life. A lot of grit, a lot of um, pushing forward, even though you didn't know what was going to come out the other side. And through a lot of the different experiences over the years, a little bit of challenge here and, and taking another challenge there, that really what is what brought us forward to the point where um, we thought about doing Race Across America. And how the whole thing got started, actually, is funny. It got started with a podcast. I interviewed another gentleman, uh, named Dan Berlin, from what from the podcast that uh, that I had been a part of uh, for a while, and Dan is also uh, almost totally blind, and he is a businessman. He he owned one of the largest vanilla extract companies in the world, and he and I are also endurance uh, junkies in a way. Uh, and he and I got on the phone one day, and I said, Dan, what's the hardest thing you could think of doing uh, in athletics? And he said, ride my bike across the country. And I said to myself, Dan, let's go do it. You know, I didn't give it a second thought. Never even said, how are we going to do it? None of that. But we said, we're going to do it. And it, that, that's kind of just to give you a sense of the, of the mentality that we had developed, both of us, in our many pursuits over the years. It's just, just, just this attitude of, I'm not going to even wonder how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go do it. And the thing that came out of it was... Um, that we, we wanted to find an opportunity to share some of the experiences that we had, we have had as blind professionals. You know, we recognize that the unemployment rate or joblessness rate for people who are blind, visually impaired in America, who are college educated, right now is over 20 times the national average, or close to 20 times the national average. And we said to ourselves, well, look at us. We have been fortunate to have these corporate experiences that we've had and we've grown and we've advanced um, and why is that not the case for the rest? And we started thinking about it and we said to ourselves, really the, the, the challenge we think is that people are not aware um, and not f- aware of and exposed to other people who are blind, who are uh, successful, if you will, uh, and working in, in corporate America. And so we wanted a scalable way to have impact. And through the movie that we're filming, we actually filmed a movie as part of this race. We're filming a documentary that's focused specifically on uh, blindness and success and saying that 
yes, here are four riders who are professionals, who are visually impaired, taking on a very tough challenge. But really, the, the challenge that we've taken on is the challenge of actually life and uh, being professionals and working. And that's what we're going to highlight as part of the, uh, the, the movie that we're producing. So when you actually lost your sight at 16, what, what was your next step? Did you go through some rehabilitation? What, what did you do next? You know, uh, this is a great question. Uh, and the, the, the answer is that I actually did not do any rehabilitation at all. Um, I, I had had very limited eyesight prior to this and had some, had learned how to read Braille and things like that. Um, but, you know, where I was, my parents are from are, are, are first generation uh, from Taiwan. We didn't really know a whole lot about rehabilitation and, and, and all of these things and programs that were available. You know, we just went forward and just worked hard and pushed forward and pushed hard uh, to to try to make these, these opportunities uh, come about. And so it, it was really through just a lot of trial and error, uh, honestly, we did get connected with the New Jersey State Commission for the Blind, and I had a, um, an individual who was, she was helping me to work through some of the, the challenges that I had at school, um, having access to some Braille materials and some assignments and things like that. But in, in large part, uh, I just, I had a, a great family who really tried to think outside the box, um, who encouraged me to try to be more independent, and I think that was, an, an, that in itself was rehabilitation right there. Yeah, that's <laughs> you did it on your own, huh? Just yeah. trial and error. Uh, just you know, and I think that that perspective is really what has helped me to uh, part of to to be who I am today, uh, and and just being thrust into a position where you know, there was no backup; it was just me, uh, and you got to just figure it out. You see, there's sink or swim. That's definitely tough right there. How to how to do that? And then mm-hmm. how to, did you do O and M Braille or? Well, yeah, so I did do some O and M, and I told the story at a, at a, a, a talk I gave last night. And, and it's funny, I, I, I did learn O and M when I was very young. But the story, the story goes that uh, my O and M teacher told me the height of being good at using your cane is to be able to find a dime on the floor with your cane. I said to myself, "My goodness, I don't. I'm never going to be able to do that." But, uh, but, but, nevertheless, uh, I did learn uh, when I was very young how to use a cane, uh, and those skills came in handy uh, later on after I lost the rest of my eyesight. Um, but I was, I was very, uh, I, w- I was a little bit of a rebel, I should say. Uh, I never really wanted to use assistive devices. I never wanted to use a brailler. I always felt very conspicuous in class. I never wanted to be that person, that blind person that everyone. You know, thought about as a blind person, so I, I just I just didn't take notes in class. I was kind of embarrassed, and uh, and and I think uh, you know my own stubbornness actually I think worked to my advantage as well, uh, in the sense that uh, not taking notes in class meant that I had to really learn how to use uh, my memory to memorize everything. Uh, uh, and so even though I was stubborn, I, I think it all worked out in the end. I want, I'm going to turn it back over to Lou. Uh, Jack has said something that was uh, very profound. I think he's talked about lack of exposure. How does lack of exposure to people who are blind actually affect people's perceptions of people who are blind? Well, I, I think it's well, well founded, well known that the sighted public has a lot of preconceived notions based off of, uh, for many different reasons, um, and uh, without having exposure to people who are blind, those preconceived notions are what remains, you know. Uh, at the top of the shelf as far as many, many uh, sighted people are concerned. And many of those sighted people are folks who are <clears throat> in charge of the 
employment processes at their companies, etc. And in general, uh, those preconceived notions represent fear of liability. How do we accommodate for someone who's blind? How in the world will they do this job, that job, or the other? Uh, so those preconceived notions become rule of thumb for right. employment by people who are cited who are employing people and consequently have negative thoughts about the hiring of someone who's blind. Jack talked about education. I mean, that, that's key to everything. I used to coach, and I could have a captive audience and tell them about what all we did in our program, the successes we had. Uh, I could be at my best in delivering and capture the audience for a moment, they would leave and they would lapse back eventually into what they've heard most of their life. The real change in attitudes and learning came about when I would be in a gymnasium with the kids who, as an example, wrestled on our team and put them out on mat and beat a sighted kid. Mm -hmm in front of a sighted audience. Mm -hmm. That maybe three to six minute match, however mm -hmm. long it might have lasted, uh, did had so much more impact than me standing up in front of an audience, and particularly me as a person who sighted, mm -hmm. preaching the message about why you should, you know, why right. you should hire, uh, why you should include, etc. people who are blind. Um, and so those preconceived notions are powerful, and uh, breaking those is not the easiest thing to learn. And, I, and if I can add to that, I, th I think that there's, in addition to the hiring piece, which is another piece that I'm particularly passionate about, is the advancement uh, of people who are blind and visually impaired in corporate America. And you know, in addition to the hiring challenges, there are the challenges of seeing people who are blind and visually impaired and people with disabilities in general running these companies. If you never see that it's possible, that, it, that it's done, there are people who are blind running companies, uh, you'll never think that it's a real possibility. And maybe I'm oversimplifying, but, but the, the point is that one of my goals is to highlight extraordinary success yeah. amongst the blindness organizations. So the people on our team I was a, I'm an attorney at Google. Uh, there's Dan Berlin, who is uh, the founder and, um, and and who used to run this large vanilla extract company, uh, worldwide operations. And 75% of the the his their product is, was in 75% of the grocery stores in the U.S. Uh, we had uh, Tina Ament, who was who is a uh, district attorney, appeals judge, um, and then we've got uh, Kyle Kuhn, who was a uh, is a, a media and PR person. But the point is uh, that we wanted to show uh, as much extraordinary success as possible because we believe that when you can advance and promote people who are blind and visually impaired and they achieve VP, SVP, CEO status, they can create room. It's like the siphon effect. Right? When you have people at the top, they can pull in people at the bottom, create opportunities, and really then advance uh, the perception of people who are uh, blind and, and visually impaired uh, in, in, in yeah. corporate America as a whole. So I know people may even ask, I know you said you raced across America, so how does a person who is blind race across America? You use a tandem bike, right? 
I did. I did. I used and a tandem what, bike. And what is actually is a tandem bike for those who do not know? A tandem bike is a pers- is a bike that has uh, two seats, one in front and one in back, and the person who rides in the back is visually impaired, or at least I hope so. <laughs> 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 and it's called the Stoker, and uh, and uh, the person who rides in front is uh, called uh, the, the pilot or the captain, if you will. Uh, and we had four four uh, four bike teams, so, so two four tandem uh, racers on our team. Uh, and uh, the the it was a very very complicated setup, uh, but essentially we had you know eight bikes, eight riders, uh, about forty two uh, volunteer staff. Uh, in the end, three RVs, four vans, uh, and you know an entire media and um, uh, film crew as well. So it was a it's quite a big adventure putting that together. Yeah, and I think uh, why don't you. Uh, talk a little bit about it, Jack, yeah. when you talk about a pilot and a stoker mm-hmm. and the rules, and I don't want uh, people who, who are not familiar with the operation of the tandem cycle to think, well, the sighted person gets on there and does all the work. <laughs> that happened to us a few times, absolutely. <laughs> people say, hey, you should pedal back there. <laughs> uh, but I will, I'll, I'll, so just to set it up for people, I'll give yeah. you a sense of what it's like to be on the road and what some of the transitions were like. So Imagine we were switching off every half hour, and so there were probably a total of 350 or more different transitions over the course of riding the seven and a half days across the country. And so what it was like is, you know, someone on the front, uh, they have control of all the steering and all the gears uh, on the bike. But certainly they couldn't pedal a bike, or it would be difficult for them to pedal a bike with two people's weight on it. Right, and so you've got the person in the front who's riding, but the back person also has handlebars as well, and also obviously has pedals. And so uh, the, the the person in the back largely focuses uh, on uh, their their riding style, keeping the bike in centered, uh, and also providing a lot of power uh, as well. Um, but if you think about the the challenge of, of being visually impaired and, and doing this race, the way it was set up is, is like this. Uh, we would have bikes switching off every half hour. So you've got a, a, a pair of riders that's riding on a bike going down the street. They would reach their 10-mile point or so, and there would be a van waiting for them with the next pair of riders. So imagine the, the, that pair of riders riding in the van has got to drive up 10 miles. They've got to park in an appropriate space off the road. They've got to unload the next tandem bike, get it on the road in the right spot, get the two riders on the bike. And then when the, then the, 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 the existing riding pair is coming up, they cross wheels, if you will, and the, the, the wheels don't touch, but they cross over. And then uh, that, rider, that set of riders gets, gets going. But then you've got to pack up that tandem bike, put it in the van, get the two riders in the van, they got to eat something for the next, you know, whatever, 10, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it is. The van has to drive forward uh, and park and, and do this whole dance over again. And not only that, but once the, the four hours is over where those riders have been switching off every half hour, then the vans meet up with the RVs. And that team, that, that, that team of two bikes gets to go in the RV, eat a little, sleep a little if they can, uh, shower if you, if you can. And, uh, and, then, you know, and then the next four hours gets to do it all over again. So it was that all the way across the country, and like I said, about 350 different transitions across the country. Where did you start and where did you stop? We started in San Diego, uh, in one ocean, and we essentially ended in Annapolis at the other ocean. <clears throat> wow, that's, that's admirable right there, and that's, that's a great work. It's right a there. fun adventure. That writer in the back who's, who's blind is called a stoker for a reason. The word itself is somewhat explanatory mm. of 
what the activity is when you're on the bike, and that is part of the real power pack. Mm -hmm. uh, is the, the stoker? Oh yes. That, that person right there does a lot of pedaling. <laughs> but, you know, one thing I wanted to touch on, I know technology plays a lot of uh, a key role in our lives right now. How does technology help you get across the country or help you with your day-to-day -day tasks? Well, I, I, I think most people would probably say that uh, uh, I'm addicted to uh, using my phone. Uh, I use my phone for just about every activity, and it's quite amazing growing up um, while being, being alive at this point, uh, being visually impaired, and having access to a device that you can pull out of your pocket that can do so much for you. It can call a car for you. Uh, it can help you read documents and emails and be on chat and send text messages and read books and any number of other uh, activities. Uh, in addition to having access to the iris service, which, which I do, uh, which can help you navigate different places. So, you know, the, the phone provides so many opportunities that were simply not available when I was younger and growing up. Uh, many of these services were through specialized hardware, which was expensive and hard to maintain. And to get content onto those devices was not easy. And now that we've had, what if you call it, sort of a, a, a democratization, if you will, of technology and information, uh, it's made life a lot easier. And so there's still a ton of challenges, but but really the, the opportunities are there. The tools are, are there. Yeah. Uh, we still have a ways to go, I think, in terms of making access to those technologies as accessible as they can be. But there are options uh, and many more options than there used to be. Next time you uh, race across America, you use those Ira glasses. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have that battery charge. But <laughs> there you go. There you go. Great. Well, uh, you know, I just wanted to talk to you guys and uh, just get your perspective on how we can enhance people's perception of people who are blind and really mm -hmm. show them the capabilities of what people who are blind can do. Because really, racing across America is not one of my top things right now, but mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe in the near future, and definitely uh, I commend you from you know, going right. on. Uh, just go just uh, a last comment from my perspective. Sure. Jack uh, brought this up, but I'd like to expand on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, employment being such an enormous issue uh, and gross figures about unemployment for disability yeah. in general and blindness in mm -hmm. particular. Mm -hmm. A person who's blind has a great challenge at getting reasonable employment. That's why we have a 70% unemployment rate. Uh, but Jack mentioned something else that is of extreme importance. Getting employed is the difficult step number one mm -hmm. and, and well and there's a really a pre-step to that and that's the training the education and the education mm -hmm. and getting yourself prepared to be able to penetrate that employment market but once you're in it upward mobility mm -hmm. some of the preconceived issues still remain at employment centers and otherwise businesses, corporate America, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and many people who are not disabled feel they've done their service by hiring someone who's mm -hmm. blind. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's really just step number one. Now, not everybody wants to rise to the top. There are people Blindness is no different than mm -hmm. sighted. Mm -hmm. It's a cross-section of society. The only difference is that people who are blind can't see so well and they have to learn to do things in a different way. Otherwise, uh, the capabilities are there. And so it's important that the message gets out to employers that 
just employing is terrific, but don't let it stop there. Keep an eye on that employee, the same as who's blind, the same as you yes. would anyone else mm-hmm. who you think could be even a further and a higher level addition to a company. Yes, so, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the, the challenge that I face and many of my uh, friends who are um, vision, vision impaired face uh, is, the fa- is, is the challenge of unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that these days, uh, as, as much as before, there is explicit bias against people who are blind and visually impaired. And I think Lee hit it on the head when you said that hiring is the first step. And many people say that they've uh, executed their responsibility to, to the community when they hire somebody. But the challenge is that, as you said, there's many people who don't want to advance, but there are many people who do want to advance. Uh, and when you, you see things happen, such as um, you know, most of the people who started in my starting quote-unquote class at the company have been promoted, but I have not. And it's been eight years. And I, I asked myself the question, well, why is that the case? When you look back, um, I noticed that you know, the, the, the new projects, the new uh, the, the, the challenges that have come have all come to someone else. You know, and, and I asked myself the question, well, is it just that I'm not performing quite as well? But I look back on what I've done and I said, well, my performance has been you know, quite impressive. And, and uh, you know, to me, I can see it. Uh, and, and it's just this, con- this concept of unconscious bias is that the opportunity is not provided there. And when the opportunities aren't provided there, there's an opportunity to show growth, to show skill. And then when it comes time to choose somebody who will take on the next leadership role, uh, those opportunities don't become available because you haven't shown skill in being able to take on something really big and challenging. So that's just one small piece of mm-hmm. kind of the unconscious bias puzzle. Uh, that there is out there, but it it has a dramatic effect. It's it seems uh, as though it's invisible in a way, but it has a dramatic effect. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Great words from both of you guys. I definitely appreciate that. And Jack, I know you have a movie coming out. So when does, can we expect the movie? Well, we are in the process of uh, finding the right uh, additional production staff and editing staff uh, to be able to help put this together. Because a, a film like this really requires a, a great, great, great storyteller. Uh, and we are in, in the process of looking for that individual, uh, looking for those individuals to help round out our, our staff um, to, to make that happen. But yes, we are, uh, we're, we're thinking a year or two, maybe. We're lucky. So if they want to get in contact with you, with you or even check out your podcast, how can they go about doing well, that? Well, certainly the podcast that I run is called Excel Ability, E-X-C-E-L Ability, and it's uh, Excel, excelability.net. Uh, and I interview people who have disabilities who are incredibly successful just to try to understand what are the habits, attitudes, techniques, and practices that have enabled them to be incredibly successful. Uh, they can find uh, find me there uh, in the contact uh, link uh, on the podcast. Uh, and that's probably the best way to, uh, to get in touch with me. All right, well, thank you once again, Jack, Lou. I want to thank you guys for coming on the podcast. Make sure you guys are following us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for having us, Ray. Thanks, right. Ray. Yeah.